Well, I sure wish I had thought ahead and made some kind of a little thing that says birds in the news because I can't do it myself as well. But we've got birds in the news this week. And when we have birds in the news, it also means we have Laura Erickson on the line. Howdy there, sunshine. Good morning. So the U.S. conservation group, the Audubon Naturalist Society, has decided they're going to drop the Audubon name because Audubon was a slaveholder. He took five human skulls from a battlefield in Texas. He sent them to Samuel Morton, who was a doctor, and the doctor attempted to determine differences that he claimed showed varying intelligence levels between races. Laura, you've talked a lot about um, very poor practices with regard to birds and animals with uh, 19th century naturalists. Uh, um, did Audubon, he went, did he cross the line then when he also mistreated other human beings? I believe so. It's especially ironic, though, because there's a great deal of evidence that Audubon himself had um, was uh, not what you would call white, at least not 100% white, which back then in several of the southern states, if you had even a tiny amount of black blood, you were considered black. And so it is ironic I think it's a wonderful thing that people are starting to really think hard about why the heck we ever named birds after human beings anyway. We're all of us flawed, and there are no birds that were named for a person who really studied that bird. And there's organizations named after people um, that the organization has evolved so much over generations that it's silly to be carrying a person's name from earlier when that person does not at all embody even the ornithological values, much less the ethical and moral values of a totally different time. It's cool to honor people who have done significant things. And Audubon most certainly has done more back when he lived to make people in the United States and in Europe and the U.K. aware of the, of the wonderful wealth of birds in America. But to have an organization that is working really hard for conservation to be named for a man who never painted a bird that he didn't eat and shoot <laughs> seems really ironic. So there are many reasons. Mm. And we it's like you needed this one little quantum leap of energy to actually do anything about it. But I think it's been a mistake all along 
for organizations to be named for Audubon. It is important to know in this case, though, that the change in name is not the National Audubon Society. Exactly. That was something that I I did want to point out, because when we talk about birds and we talk about Audubon, we immediately think about local Audubon societies or the National Audubon Society. This is the Audubon Naturalist Society, so it's a little bit different. But let's talk about the Audubon Society. Uh, have are are they beginning to grapple with this issue at all? Are they considering a name change, or has there been conversation about that? Oh yes, there's been a lot of conversation in all kinds of ornithological circles, but including both National Audubon and some uh, some of the maybe even all of the local chapters about changing the name. Uh, a lot of the national chapters are exactly that chapters. Massachusetts Audubon is totally separate from National Audubon, but a lot of the, like Duluth Audubon, is part of National Audubon, and so uh, probably are constrained from making a name change unless National Audubon does. So, but like the American Ornithologist Union that I joined in 1978 or 79 and has existed since the 1800s, They changed their name recently uh, to the American Ornithological Society, and that's because they brought in, they combined with another ornithological group, the Cooper Ornithological Society, which then lost the name Cooper because they're part of the American Ornithological Society, but they did not get rid of the name Cooper. Um, They didn't examine Cooper to decide if he is still worthy to have a big organization named after him. That was just because they were lumped instead of split. Um, is that the same Cooper as the Cooper's Hawk? Yep. Oh, well, he could have, he's got a hawk. Does he need an organization, too? And does he need a hawk? Does he? Um, well, you know, yeah. like the Song Sparrow. So much, and no bird is named for a woman who studies that bird. Anna's hummingbird and Lucy's warbler were both named because the man who got to name the bird named it for somebody he loved who had absolutely nothing to do with the bird and in both cases may never have even seen the bird in alive. And so it's a little bit ridiculous. Uh, the, the women who have done so much research and like Margaret Morse Nice knowing more about the song sparrow than anybody knew about any species before her. She's the one who kind of um, showed ornithologists the way in studying a bird. But the song sparrow is not named Nice's sparrow. Most of the birds named for men were only named for men because that guy happened to shoot them and send them to a museum where the scientist at the museum sometimes named it the bird for the guy who shot it, even though he didn't even know what it was. While we're talking about women who can do amazing things, it is time for birds in the news (laughs) to turn its attention to a virgin birth at the San Diego Zoo. 
I've been pulling out my hair ever since I saw the first headline, virgin birth, which is wrong on both counts. The two female birds who produced offspring by parthenogenesis, uh, meaning in a sort of Greek way, kind of virgin birth, but it means that um, they produced eggs that were fertile without any contribution from a male's sperm. So both babies only had genes from their mother. But in both cases, those mothers were not virgins. They had mated with males at other times. And uh, I think at least one of them also produced, I think before and after the, quote, virgin birth, um, baby condors that came from a mother and a father. So calling it a virgin is ridiculous. And then it's not quite true that birds give birth. They lay eggs, and in these cases, fertile eggs. We see birds, uh, literal virgin birds, laying eggs all the time. As a matter of fact, Russ ate two of those eggs for breakfast today because most of the chickens that lay eggs, it's just the product of ovulating and the egg goes down and it didn't get fertilized, but it goes down the chute, comes out, and, and it's food for people. The the Wired article was more circumspect in its headline. It said California condors are capable of asexual reproduction. And that works. And that uh, works. That is All accurate. Right. The trick is if in some peculiar way a mammal did that, the babies would have to be females. But when a bird does it, the babies have to be males. And that's because um, in mammals, we have the X and the Y chromosome. And females have two Xs, and males have an X and a Y. And so there is no way a mother can give her baby a Y chromosome, and so there is no way a male could be produced. With birds, they have what they call the W and the Z chromosomes, and uh, the the, uh, female is the um, one who has both the Z and the W, and the male only has two Zs. So the female, if she, if her um, unfertilized offspring had uh, two Ws, it, there, there's no such thing. The W chromosome, like our Y chromosome, is smaller and doesn't have enough information, and it would never produce an offspring that had two Ys or, in the case of birds, two Ws. So uh, the only way a baby could survive as if her contribution was two Zs, um, you know, and then the baby would have to be ZZ, and that makes them male. And that is also why this is not a big win for conservation and keeping the species alive, because we it's impossible to have only males in a population that survives. So as and in know. addition, one of the one of the interesting things that the um, that the article talks about is they say that 
because the egg is fusing with a cell that has a nearly identical set of chromosomes. There is almost no genetic diversity in the offspring. Um, it lacks diversity, which is why we see in most cases of parthenogenesis, the animals don't do well long term. They're just about the most inbred you could be. Exactly. So it's, it, I mean, it's kind of exciting, and you read it if you don't know, and you get excited. You think condors, yay, more condors. We need more condors, and and then it's, it's a little disappointing, and yet it's well, they're adorable. It's interesting, but it's not anything hopeful as far as improving things for condors in the long term. A no news story examined the possibility that the mother. Uh, that either mother could have been what we call a gynandromorph, meaning that half her body was female with a functional ovary and half her body was male with a functional testis. And we know that there are birds that have this condition, being a gynandromorph. Uh, in the news, cardinals have made it a lot uh, because there's been a couple of cases. It's really obvious in a cardinal because half the body, the side with the testis, is red, and the other half is brown. Uh, we've also seen it in Evening Growth Speaks. The Bell Museum, which is part of the University of Minnesota, has gynandromorph Evening Growth Speaks. But with a California condor, because both the male and female are identical, there's no way of knowing if the mother was a gynandromorph. And so that would at least explain how it could happen that, um, you know, that she was producing sperm and eggs that came combined in the, the cloaca. But we don't know for sure. And as we move to our final story this morning... <laughs> In Birds in the News, and things that are not what they appear, New Zealand's Bird of the Year is a bat, a long-tailed bat. And the story is wonderful, and I wish I could pronounce its name in Maori because it's cute and the name sounds cute. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Um, New Zealand has never, ever been able to have a um, native mammal of the year because there are only two choices. There are only two mammals native to New Zealand, and they are both bats. And the long-tailed bat, which is, the New York Times said it's the length of a thumb. And I can look at my thumb, Russ's thumb, and my 14-month-old grandson, Walter's thumb, they are all different sizes, so I'm not quite sure whose thumb they were talking about, but it's a small little bat. And how was it, go and it's critically endangered, and so it was really important to get public attention on it, and why not call it a bird in New Zealand for a year? That's, that's cool. They weigh less than a tablespoon of sugar which is pretty going to be fairly standard across them, unless it's powdered sugar. Powdered sugar and regular sugar, um, that could be different. They are critically endangered, and they wanted to draw attention to that. And so people were a little bit shocked uh, because they beat the competition for Bird of the Year by over 3,000 votes. Yeah, the bird that was in second place was already was the bird of the year this year too, the flightless parrot. 
So, you know, the uh, birds have had a lot of attention lavished on them, the ones that are endangered in New Zealand. Um, and it was good to have another endangered flying animal featured. So I'm pretty pleased about it, even though I'm usually very much a purist as far as birds, the difference between birds and mammals. Well, Laura, thank you so very much for joining us this morning for Birds in the News. We appreciate it and hope we get a chance to talk again soon. Thanks so much for uh, kind of setting the record straight on some of the recent stories that we've been enjoying here. And thank you for having me. Laura Erickson this morning, our guest on Northland Morning.